A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means that adult language is probably going to be present, just so you know. From the Bedlam Podcast Network, this is A Tiny Revolution, celebrating our everyday victories while telling the stories and having the conversations that actually matter. I'm Kevin Garcia, and I am so excited to be with you this week. Sorry that I uh, took last week off. I'm in the middle of a move and training for a new job. Yes, I did find a job. I'm going to be serving burgers for a while, and it's just so I can pay the bills. So I'm thankful that you guys have been sticking with me and praying for me. Uh, continue to pray for more opportunities to arise so I can continue to pay my bills. That would be stellar. Um, before we jump into today's conversations, I just want to let you know about the dates coming up. October 12th, if you are planning to come see me in Santa Barbara, unfortunately, due to some uh, unforeseen circumstances, which I know is incredibly vague, um, the event in Santa Barbara has been canceled. Super duper sad, but I'm still going to be in the LA area, so if you are around anytime between the 12th and the 21st, um, I've got a lot of downtime, and I'd love to hang out with you, to connect with you. Um, probably that Sunday, I'm going to be up in Costa Mesa at First United Methodist, which is Reverend Sarah Heath's church. She was featured on the Liturgist podcast um, recently, uh, talking about her experience as being a woman and being a pastor in the UMC. Additionally, I am probably going to be kicking it with my friend Brian Tirada, who is the host of the Be Free podcast. He and I are kind of dreaming up ways that we can expand our storytelling capacity, ways we can reach out to other people, and hopefully launching some really exciting things in the coming months. So stay tuned to that and go over to the iTunes store, check out Brian's podcast, just search Be Free, and then in parentheses put the word split, because it was originally called the Split Podcast, uh, but now it's the Be Free Podcast. Blah, blah, blah. Go listen to it from beginning to end. It is a stellar story of one man coming to terms with his sexual identity in a very conservative Christian context while also dealing with mental health issues like depression and eating disorders, the whole nine yards. It's literally, it's heartbreakingly beautiful and uh, it continues to get better. October 20th through the 22nd, I'm going to be in LA for the Reformation Project National Conference where I'm leading worship. So if you haven't already, go get your tickets at reformationproject.org slash LA. Get all the info there and be sure to register for the pre-conference on the 20th, which is the Academy for Racial Justice. It's just an additional $20 for people who are attending the conference and $50 for those who are just wanting to do the one-day workshop. Either way, you need to be there. It's featuring amazing speakers like Julie Rogers, who's like, literally, if you don't know who that is, you need to get on Twitter, follow her, love her. Um, hopefully she'll be coming on the podcast um, in the next couple months. I'm excited to be talking with her about her experience and what she's doing to build inclusive queer spaces. Um, moving on, October 29th, I'm going to be in Birmingham, Alabama for a house show. And on October 30th in the afternoon, I'm going to be leading worship at Radical Hope Church. Special shout out to my friend Steve Austin from GracesMessy.com for hooking me up with those events. And then January 5th through the 8th, details are still being worked out, but it looks like I'm going to be leading worship alongside Darren Calhoun at the Gay Christian Network National Conference in Pittsburgh. If you haven't already caught your tickets for that, go to GCNConf.com, which is G-C-N-C-O-N-F.com, and grab your tickets, get your hotel room squared away, book your flight, and I'll see you in Pittsburgh right after the first of the year to celebrate what God's doing in our community. By the way, if you ever want to book me for an event, I'm absolutely available. Coming to your school, your university, your church, conference, a coffee shop, house show, whatever it is, you can always shoot me a message through the blog, which is Kevin Garcia, or excuse me, it's thekevingarcia.com slash speaking. Don't go to kevingarcia.com. That's some other person who is like a, a fantasy author. I don't know. Not me. So you want to book me, it's thekevingarcia.com slash speaking. Last thing before we jump into the conversations today, um, if you ordered a Bad Theology Kills shirt and you got it and you were like, this is actually kind of not as beautiful as I wanted it to be, I would agree with you. I feel very disappointed in how those shirts turned out, and I'm actually talking with teespring.com to figure out what the, you know what happened. I guess I shouldn't say the F word if I don't have to, I'm trying to be... I have to practice because like being a server, I can't just like say all the custom words I want to in front of customers. Um, anyways, I'm talking with Teespring. I'm going to figure out how to make this right. And I'm so sorry that this wasn't a quality. That just freaking sucks. And uh, I want to make that right. So just be on the lookout for an email from Teespring or from me. If you purchased a Bad Theology Kill, 
a bad theology kills shirt. Thanks for your patience with that one. Okay, jumping into it now. It is Pride weekend here in Atlanta, and I know Pride usually happens like June, July for most of the country, but here in Atlanta, we do it late in the season because it's so damn hot outside. And it also comes super close to National Coming Out Day, which is Tuesday, October 11th this year. We see a lot of beautiful stories on Coming Out Day, stories of bravery, of choosing to be oneself despite all the voices around you, uh, despite what everybody says that you have to be. It's stories of owning one's truth and stepping into the fullness of who God created us to be. But the thing with coming out in many Christian contexts, especially if you're part of the evangelical tradition, especially if you're living in the South like I am, these are often met with, you know, rather than joy and love and acceptance, you're met with isolation, ultimatums, and ultimately sometimes excommunication from the tribes and communities that you were loyal to for so long. And it's even more complicated when you're not just owning your queer identity, but if you've got a mixed race identity wrapped up in that, or even if you're a woman. So today I'm featuring two conversations I recently had with two of my, uh, one uh, one good friend I've known for a while and, new, and a new friend I just recently connected with through Twitter. The first conversation is with my friend Kenji Kuramitsu. Kenji was the first person to introduce me to critical mixed race Christology and has really helped me work through some of my own junk when it comes to my own mixed race identity. In this conversation, we're going to be talking about what it's like coming out as a Christian and the context of what it looks like to lose communities that we love so dearly. And then the second part of the podcast, I'm talking with BuzzFeed producer Nikki Ong, a queer Christian and Asian woman living in LA. So let's go ahead and jump into the first part with me and Kenji. So a little bit about Kenji. Kenji's a writer, an educator, a seminarian living in Chicago. He graduated from the University of Illinois and is a current Master of Divinity student at McCormick Theological Seminary on Chicago's South Side. Kenji serves on the board of the Reformation Project and also on the board of directors for the Japanese American Citizens League, and he works as a community engagement fellow at McCormick Theological Seminary. He was also featured as the one of the 2016 New Faces of Ministry. He was raised Roman Catholic, non-denominational, evangelical, congregationalist, Japanese-American, which sounds as complicated as it is um, and has a very interesting story uh, of having an LGBTQ family structure that makes him quite invested and interested in these issues. So, um, yeah, Kenji's an amazing voice, and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation and have all the Me Too and AHA moments that I did. So let's just jump into it. This is my conversation with Kenji Kuramitsu. Um, I think in terms of multiracial theology and sort of identity, as a young kid, I was probably exposed to a lot of uh, comments and interesting remarks from people in my life, whether from family members or um, other people who I came into contact with who were uncomfortable with how I looked physically because uh, my parents come from different ethnic backgrounds. Mm -hmm or my name confused people or whatever else. So I think those things were sort of simmering under the surface in terms of um, things that have formed me in the past, but it was really only a couple of years ago that I had the opportunity to visit one of the Japanese-American concentration camps during World War II on a pilgrimage with some young people out of Chicago. And that was a very, very formative moment. That was the first time I really thought about multiraciality and, you know, being a person of color in a critical sort of positive way Um, and that came from really feeling like a sense of I would have been here if I were alive at that time I would have been just like all of these people just like my family you know behind bars and um, having lost freedom and all these other things so that was I think a moment that broke me out of the suburban niceness and whiteness of my upbringing which pretty much told me you're just half of something or um, basically just a white kid you know um it was hard in some ways to make friends with people of my Asian background, ethnic groups, or um, white so friends. You, like, there was always something marking you as different, I guess. Yeah. Growing up, did you, did you, like, I guess it was, like, before that, did you kind of just always just perceive yourself to be white? 
Super interesting. I think that um, as so a little bit of background on me, my dad is uh, Japanese from the Big Island of Hawaii, and my mom is German, Ita- Italian, and Serbian. And she pretty much um, has, has a white cultural identity, so is not in touch with those ancestral ethnic roots. But my dad and my dad's side are. So growing up, we had a bunch of different foods and friends and even languages, like little words, over for meals. And it was normal to have Thanksgiving served with sushi and roast duck yeah, and, and interesting foods. So I think food was, for me, the, the first authentic marker of a cultural identity that wasn't white. And I kind of grew up understanding myself to be, like, not quite white, but pretty much, like... And I remember the first time someone asked me how I felt as a person of color about something. It was a white friend, and and we were talking about racism. And I didn't know he was talking to me. I, like, looked around the room, and I was like, I I don't count. I'm, like, half of something, and I can't be a part of this. I, I, I guess I wasn't aware, especially growing up, of the history of the movement of critical race theory or... Um, the Asian American movement that talked or even like any of the critical mixed race studies stuff that had been happening since the 80s and 90s, especially on the West Coast. Um, But that would have been helpful to know growing up. And so I actually get a lot of parents who talk to me or send messages, you know, um, not necessarily about uh, their family dynamics in terms of sexuality, which is another thing that I've Mm -hmm. like an area that I try to work on and focus on because of my own family structure and my own identities. But Mm -hmm. I get a lot of questions about raising mixed-race kids um, from people who are mixed-race and from people who are monoracial, who have never had to think about some of this stuff mm-hmm. before. Um, usually a white person and a person of color, um, usually a man and a woman, but I've also had friends whose family creation stories come all sorts of ways, so through inter- international or transracial adoption or um, any sort of other family creation things and making that go into how our families are today and those are like some really acute needs that aren't I think addressed as much how do we talk about race this ridiculous absurd violent thing with Mm -hmm. kids especially with kids who who have no understanding of belonging in one set racial group or another Um, and so I'm I'm hopeful for like parenting future generations that'll be more uh, holistic and healing than the way that the I was raised with certain racial ideas, not to put any blame on my parents, but um, I just don't think that they thought about a lot of this stuff. So they just didn't have the tools for it. No, 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 not at all. And I know that you, I'm not trying to turn the interview around back on you, but I I know that you also come from a a multiracial family background. And um, I think that's one of the reasons I connected with you so much at first. There's there's this sense of, of being in between something or, um, you know, the, the, there's a Vietnamese Catholic theologian named Peter Fan who, who talks about this kind of identity as being betwixt and between. And there's something very queer about it, too. Like, it's defying categorization easily of, like, a dominant group. And, and there's people on all these sides, like, tearing and pulling. And so it's definitely a rhythm that I've, and a cadence that I've fallen into over these past few years of learning about mixed-race stuff. And it's something I see in the life of Jesus as well, which is really encouraging. I think you, like, talking to you for the first time was the, and I've told you this before, like, this was the first time I'd ever, I think it was the last Racial Justice Institute that Reformation Project put on, where I actually sat down and started thinking about my, are you drinking a soda? (laughs) (laughs) Is it LaCroix? No, it's, it's actually a Hawaiian sun green tea with ginseng and other natural flavor. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. I'm here in Hawaii this week and trying to stay hydrated with the local drinks. Sorry. I'm not, I'm not mad about it. Um, I like how you like try to be sneaky about it. Though. Just like, it's like, I can hear it so loud. Um, but yeah, it was uh, with the last Reformation Project's Racial Justice Institute where like Matthew asked me a very pointed question. Like, Kevin, do you consider yourself a person of color? And I was like... I don't know anymore um, because like, I mean, here's what's funny though is on every standardized test that I've ever taken SATs or like those like state standardized tests that I had like middle and high school. Um, when they asked what race, I always marked Hispanic always. Cause my last name is Garcia. I'm like Hispanic. Like, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when I look at my upbringing and I look about, look at like the life that I 
presently live and right. how I present, like nothing about my life looks Latinx or, um, or Hispanic. Um, and being that my skin is very, I'm, my skin's, you know, I'm ginger. I have a ginger beard on top of that. It's because of my Dutch Irish side, um, or portion of my person. It's something I've really had to think about and had to talk with, like, like and none of my brothers even think about this either. That's the thing, is that, mm-hmm. um, and it's really hard to bring it up. The burden of me also being a gay man, too, is that if I was not, if I wasn't gay, would I have ever thought about any of this stuff? Would I have ever thought about race? Would I have ever thought about poverty, right, right, women? Right. Um, because if I were straight, I could have easily rode, like, evangelicalism you know, all the way to the top and be very, and honestly, Oh, absolutely. You could preach the socks off a room. Yeah. You could worship, you know, I could do all the things that all the other cool kids can do. I can, I, I've thought about that too. Right. Right. Like, um, if my mom, if I wasn't raised by a gay parent, if I weren't mixed race, sort of the reversal for me, would I ever have thought critically about LGBT stuff in terms of my own sexuality or in, uh, in terms of like, embracing the lgbt christian conversation so i think that we like it's cool that we have different launching points it's cool that we that our origin stories come from us latching on to something like the gospel sends out a kernel of connection in terms of like race or gender or sexuality and we can be looped into this broader current of things that are happening around like you know we talk about intersectionality and and i think that's cool i i am um, i struggle too with uh with this with uh the family and sibling dynamics sometimes in terms of you know a, you and I are both come from backgrounds that are, you know, like one parent is of color and one parent is white. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, we can definitely experience privilege being of like mixed with white backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times also concurrently that is exposing us to a greater degree of uh, exclusion and uh, prejudice by being in proximity to whiteness in terms of like family dynamics Mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, and so, you know, Maria P.P. Root, who helped to found critical mixed race studies as a field and who's this brilliant psychologist, um, mixed race woman in California, in uh, Washington state, talks about in her Bill of Rights for mixed race people, you know, that multiracial people have the right to identify differently than strangers, expect us to, mm-hmm. to identify differently than our parents identify us and to identify ourselves differently than our siblings identify which yeah. was mind-boggling to me, you know? Like, we all have the same genetic makeup, but because of the various ways and contours that our lives have gone, we all have the right to identify mm-hmm. however differently we want to. And that's been, like, that especially with siblings has been, I think, really healing for me in thinking about, like, how to be multiracial and how to honor all of my ancestries that come from all parts of the world, those from Europe and those from Asia, those that move through the Pacific and whatever else, but um, to do it in a way that is not like forcing my siblings to adhere to, to my own journey has been cool. There's this interesting thing that I've kind of discovered about, about faith in general is that I sometimes like, I find myself being very passionate as it were about certain things as it comes to faith, like even like setting aside like sexuality, race and gender conversation, just about how I approach the scriptures and how I approach life. Like I will look at my family and I'm just like, do do you get it? Do you understand? And like, and I want them so badly to see things, how I see them feel things or experience God, how I experience God. Mm. And because like my brother lives in Colorado and he goes hiking all the time, he and his wife, that's their deal. My other brother and his wife, they live in California. They work for university. They're in LA doing their thing. That's their life. My other brother lives on the other side of the world and owns two cars and makes way too much money. And that's his thing. He doesn't have to think about these things. And and I I find myself wanting them to participate in the same way I am, but then mm-hmm. realizing that I can't force that. And to try and force them into what I want them to experience is really just to shove them away in a lot of ways. Because inevitably when I'm talking about my faith, I'm going to bring up sexuality. I'm going to bring up race. I'm going to bring up gender right? because it is so it, like everything belongs. Like you cannot talk about one thing without talking about all the things, you know? Right. And sometimes yeah. I, I want them to experience all the things I experience or think about and feel, but they almost, they don't have anything challenging them or they just don't have the capacity to receive what it is I'm trying to put out there. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I am. 
I've struggled between that tension too of not wanting to. <laughs> that's a temptation for me to make others into my own image in terms of like mm-hmm. sculpting their their passions, their beliefs, the way that they can use their talents yeah. to do justice in the world. But on the other side of it, of course, I'm always you know wanting to push, especially like. You know, I was exchanging emails with um, my my father this morning about um, my parents uh, and about their relationship to the Trump campaign and our differences of opinion on it. And well, they have no relationship with the Trump campaign at all. Well, in turn, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's uh, yeah, um, that's they, a thing. Yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> uh, you know, I protested. I was there in Chicago when um, Donald Trump came to speak, and the event was canceled. And I. I remember going home and talking to uh, my gay mom about it, and her one of her remarks to me immediately was, "Why are you infringing upon his freedom of speech?" You know, um, that's like definitely a, a dynamic that is there. So, like, I'm caught between wanting to, and so I'm preaching actually out here in Honolulu this Sunday on the, the lectionary text of Jesus saying, "I've come not to bring peace, but division." Mm. Yeah, uh, that's and, always and, such a strange, strange thing. It is. It's, it, it troubles everything that I you know, have come to understand about Jesus. And I think that the direction I'm taking it in is, is going to be something like, you know, what di- division, Greek die meaning two, like Jesus is coming to bring another vision or like, like two competing visions for the world or how it's supposed to be. And like, which one, like, does Jesus need to bring to us? You know, so like when Bernie Sanders called slavery reparations talk divisive, he was pointing out, like, we're literally talking about envisioning another way of being in the world. You know, when Black Lives Matter talks about alternative structures for policing and justice reform, not reform, but like prison abolition, they're, they're being divisive, but in a way that is prophetic and is like mm-hmm. challenging the structures of this world that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so I guess I'm caught in between that pole, at least with family, you know, in terms of like wanting to demonstrate that love and respect and, and still feeling like there there needs to be some troubling of this this narrative that I was raised with that I was a part of for so long this is the pattern that I was raised into as well which actually frustrates me with you know conversations with parents or family and it's appropriate that the lectionary text this Sunday is about Jesus promising to divide a mother and a daughter a father and a son a brother and a sister a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law it's happening in our families if we're talking about like this stuff and it you know I was raised believing what my uh, evangelical parent believed in terms of sexuality in terms of you know racism in terms of global warming in terms of abortion and so I spent so long in that world, and now I'm out of it. It, it. it feels a little unfair, and maybe that's unfair of me, but like I, they haven't spent time in this world, but they think that they know, I guess, where I'm coming from. I'm reading this. I just finished this book um, that Alex Haley helped write, uh, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, and it's for this class I'm taking this fall on the theology of Reinhold Niebuhr, Malcolm X, and St. Augustine, which I'm super excited about. Whoa. It's like a very interesting cocktail of theologians, like from the third century African church father to this New York ethicist to Malcolm or whatever. But this quote that I like had to write down and learning to have more grace for myself and my deeply campus crusade for Christ evangelical past of only three years ago or so mm-hmm. is... Um, this, what Malcolm wrote was, don't be in such a hurry to condemn a person because he doesn't do what you do or think as you think or as fast as you do. There was a time when you didn't know what you know today. And that's so simple. And Maya Angelou quoted that too, um, which is how I originally came upon it. But Maya. It, like, yeah. <laughs> Maya and Malcolm tell us to have, you know, like we can learn so much from the black liberation movements, like mm-hmm. calls for us to have grace for not only I don't know, at least for our past selves and truly for like people who are reflective of some of the fragments of who we used to be. And that's, those are the people who hurt me the most when I noticed that I like believed those same things. You know, I grew up in um, a non-denom. I grew up Roman Catholic with my mom um, and then also with my dad. My parents were divorced. So custody went back and forth every weekend. I went to a non-denominational megachurch, a white evangelical church in the suburbs of Chicago. And I returned for their father's day service oh, yeah, you know, yeah. as many as many people do 
Yeah, um, our pastor, man, he gave a sermon that was just so obtuse in terms of the, the difficult or traumatic or abusive relationships that people can have with their fathers. You know, he, he kept saying, I don't care what your dad has done to you. If he's still alive, you call him and you tell him how much you love him. You'll be sorry one day, all of this kind of stuff. And he closed the sermon by talking about his upcoming meeting in a private boardroom with Donald Trump the next week. Yeah, yeah, right. And reminding us that he, you know, uh, that he preached at a Ben Carson rally in the fall and we can, you know, like follow our consciences and all of these, 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 um, I don't know, dog whistle sort of pleasant politics that I, that I grew up with. And, you know, I felt like in that space, the two things that were happening was one, the erasure that you're talking about where it's like, you're not seen and it's like, you just slink down into the pew or the plush chair and you, 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 you fall into the earth and just ooze through the ground. You're not even there. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I've seen happen is, you know, what um, Claudia Rankin writes about this in Citizen. Like, she talks about how Judith Butler really opened her eyes to the fact that it's not only, like, erasure and visibility that's the problem. Sometimes the pastor on the stage, whoever it is, through, like, calling out the LGBT community or, like, putting women in their place, quote-unquote, or whatever else, what he'll do or what they'll do is to, like, not invisibilize, but uplift someone and like, and like highlight it in such a way that it metastasizes like anger and attack towards it. So like Mm. that overexposure is like just as lethal as the invisibility that, you know, we face in our churches. And, um, it was, uh, it was after I'm like, dad, that was your father's day gift. I'm returning the tie (laughs) church. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a complicated dynamic in terms of i guess navigating the the faith change the radical shifts in self-understanding and, and communicating that with people who knew you when you were in diapers you know <laughs> both both metaphorically and physically literally yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and metaphorically i suppose i oh, feel right. i feel like i went from like diapers no maybe i was just like i mean like i gave up i gave up faith for like two or tried to give up faith it's one of those things like when you give up faith i'm just like i don't know if you really ever give up faith it's just you kind of ignore yeah. it for a while I tried to yeah do you ever like think just like it would just be so much simpler if i just gave up on all this crap i can just mm-hmm. go follow jesus over here with my little baby community and we'll talk I tried about that yeah <laughs> And, like, all I want to do is just go live in a forest with a bunch of hippies at Wild Goose and never worry about the outside world or anything else again. Man, that was a cool trip. It was. Like, but it's almost like you can't, like, and I often, like, I when I was visiting my friends in Virginia, like, I wanted so badly for things to go back to the way they were in that moment. Right. You know, I'm, I'm like, caught in the, the rhythm, the, the, man, I, the nostalgia of, like, I miss being on fire for Jesus in the same way that I was when I knew all the answers, when I knew what I had to do and what I couldn't do and like who was right, who was in, who was out. When, when the gospel coalition was my homepage on my browser, like that, that certitude, certainty, like, and I, I miss it in some ways, but I also, you know, have, have such pain when I think about the, the person that I must've been at that time and the things that I, my God, me too, you know, so I think there's so many of us who are, who are thinking these things. It really feels like, I mean, if you think of any of the progressive Christian or, you know, like evangelical, like, you know, justice oriented Christians who are doing Twitter or Facebook or writing or conferencing or, or like in their own communities doing anonymous, awesome work, I, I feel like 98% of those people came from fairly conservative backgrounds mm-hmm. and have shifted. And it really seems like for every one uh, like Rosaria Butterfield, right? Who was like a yeah. atheist college professor who became a Christian and became straight. Wow! Like for every one like reverse or Marvin Olasky who founded World Magazine, mm-hmm. who was a Communist Party leader and then became a Christian and is now a conservative beacon of uh, mudslinging reporting and all this stuff. I feel like for every one of those, there's like four dozen of us people who like sexual minorities who came up in non-affirming faith communities or like people of color who were raised in white churches that didn't appreciate our gifts or whatever else. And, and I, I honestly I think feel so, like that's true. Yeah. And what's so shocking to me is like, I, I want to look at people and it's like, how can you still hold the position you do when like the data supports something different? I look at, you know, any sort of like conservative person who will look at black lives matter and say, actually blue lives matter. And I'm just like, right. but the data and the, the stories show something different or, right. 
you know, we you can hand somebody this the research surrounding sexual identity and gender and gender right. um, and how it's formed. Most like it's more than likely like like it's formed in utero in, right. in many respects. But then and th- and this is what I do. I just put my hands out and my my jaw drops to the floor. Yeah, and I'm just I'm flabbergasted because it's like, how do you not see this, sweet friend? And mm. and it's the people who claim to love me the most who have trouble accepting or even like believing that they're that they that, that anything they're doing is problematic. Like I even like I have a friend of mine who I I, re- I can't remember what we were talking about. I wanted to talk to him about like you know about you know being a you know being mixed because he is uh he's his father was black his mother was white and i wanted to talk about just like you know how is that affecting you in ministry and like then i realized like you haven't thought about this at all have you Mm. and it's like because like in many ways you've probably been and then i realized like oh tokenization he's been offended from those things he fits into the system and they can hold him up as oh look we're diverse because we have a yeah a brown-skinned man here Mm -hmm. and it's almost like I think, you know, like you mentioned the like people saying blue lives matter and like, you know, all lives matter, that crowd. And there's so, I mean, like at this point we, we know why that's not okay and why it's like a, a prophetic and good, even InterVarsity at Urbana 15 acknowledged black lives matter and like explicitly celebrated it. So like even like conservative Christian evangelical organizations who I love in many ways are, are getting this. So like what's going on, right. With like, you know, you see a support for Black Lives Matter and among white evangelicals is abysmally low. Among white mainline Christians, it's similarly low. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not very much better at all. I don't know if I've told you this before. Both of my parents are police officers in the state of Illinois, uh, and they met in the police academy and have a really um, beautiful love story that ends in uh, divorce and sadness. But um, we... <laughs> We have, <laughs> way to sell that. They have a beautiful yeah. lecture that ends in divorce and sadness. Man, it, it could, I mean, there could be a movie made out of it. It's truly also, the same thing with my parents too. To be honest, like, I mm. could, not about the police academy, but about the yeah. oh, okay. story that ends in police sadness academy and too. Yeah, um, <laughs> directed by it's, Kenji Kurimitsu and Kevin Garcia. The Kevin Garcia. Um, it's hard to have conversations with. I will say, you know, people in law enforcement about why Black Lives Matter is actually like a good and perf- and like honest and truthful and necessary thing to say and proclaim. Uh, I, you know, I was talking with um, one of my friends who co-founded Black Lives Matter in Los Angeles and she shared with me the story of her Ch- Chamel Bell. Oh, I thought she- I have only heard a, uh, an interview with Opal Tometi and I've been kind of obsessed with her ever since. Opal seems great. Um, Chanel's right. awesome too. No, no worries. She does protest dance, and you got to search some of her videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's like an amazing way of like using our bodies and, and doing protest and drawing attention to the murders by the state and all of this stuff of, of black men, women, and non-binary people. And she talked to me ex- about like some of the reactions that her church had given to her starting like Black Lives Matter at a, at a, as a Christian. Um, and I, I'm not gonna like you know this is not my story to tell, but a pattern that I'm hearing from friends who are involved in Black Lives Matter from Champaign to Chicago to Los Angeles to Portland to Kansas City is that evangelical churches and mainline churches are, are not about it. Um, they're not talking about it in the pulpits. They're not giving support for rallies or actions that are happening. We think that food drives are sufficient to address poverty in our community and maybe they'll want to talk about like why black people need to work more or the violence that they should know better than doing but for the most part our churches are so silent on this and it just makes me feel like we're living in another one of those ages like if we were in the year 312 right now and the empire of constantine had taken over christianity we would be you know like we look back then we look back now and then and are like, wow, that was everything was messed up. The church was just so complicit in violence and imperialism and colonialism. Like, man, I feel bad for those people. They had no idea. I feel like people in the future are going to look back and think that about the at least the white American church, you know, evangelical yeah. lines. Especially around the past 200, 300 years. That was my conversation with Kenji Kuramitsu. You can find Kenji on Twitter and Instagram at A Fresh Mind. And his website, KenjiKuramitsu.com, is in the process of being built, but it's going to be up soon.
Before I jump into the second part of the podcast, I wanted to give you a little life update. Like I mentioned in the first part of the podcast, I did find a job as a server, which I'm super thankful for, and I'm going to be able to pay my bills for the time being, and that is so, that's what's important, right? So I'm super thankful for everyone who's been supporting me and for praying for me and for sending me encouraging messages. It's honestly meant the world to me. But as you know, serving isn't my passion. I I don't want to spend my life, you know, as great as serving organic and ethically sourced hamburgers to people is. I'd rather be creating content for people like you and me, people who feel a bit disillusioned with the church but still really love Jesus. And that's the kind of person I'm aiming to reach with my work, and I hope to encourage with my words and the content that I'm creating. So I want to invite you to partner with me to continue to make this podcast and my blog financially possible through Patreon. Patreon is a really fantastic platform where you can actually financially support the creatives and content creators that you enjoy and engage with on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Through Patreon, you can actually create a, pl- a monthly pledge anywhere from $1 to however many dollars you want to contribute, and that's going to go directly to your creators, helping financially support the creation of blogs, podcasts, ebooks, etc., especially in my case. So if you feel that the content I've been creating here on A Tiny Revolution or through my blog, thekevingarcia.com, or through my ebook has helped influence you, encourage you, or you've sent it to other people and it's been an encouragement for them, I'd really love if you could even support with just $1, $2, 5 bucks a month, because that seriously makes all the difference in the world. And there's perks to being a supporter as well. There's a great newsletter, there is quarterly t-shirts going out, there's Google Hangouts, and uh, yeah, there's great ways that I'm going to further engage with you as a supporter and not just a fellow listener or reader when you become a patron through Patreon. So go to thekevingarcia.com slash support to learn more about that. And if you can't give financially, I totally get it, I know we're all a little strapped for cash, but if so, if you can't give financially please go to the iTunes store and leave a review. It honestly helps connect people with this podcast and my blog and hopefully encourages more people to ask bigger questions about faith, life, sexuality, culture, and so on. Thanks so much, and I really appreciate all the support you've given me thus far and the support you're going to continue to give me in the future because that's who you guys are. And uh, it's the reason I keep doing this stuff. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, time for the second part of this podcast. Um, That was an original jingle. So if you need someone to write your jingles to, just like at me on Twitter and I've got your back. (laughs) So yesterday, and I literally mean yesterday, um, I got to sit down on the Skype line with my new friend, Nikki Ong. Nikki Ong is a producer at BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. And yes, I mean that BuzzFeed. You can actually go and like see her all over the internet she's such a gem and she's so well i her personality on camera is just electric and fun and cool and that's kind of what prompted me to ask her to come on the podcast she did a video recently with in the closet with jen called can you be queer and christian and i was like ah i want to know her story because i bet it's interesting because it's not every day you see queer christians that visible on the internet I'm not going to tell her whole story, but listening to what she's walked through and a bit bit on her biography, I had so many Me Too moments, so many moments where I was just like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, It's heartbreaking, but still beautiful because she's such a resilient individual. In addition to coming out as a queer Christian in a very Christian context, she has a ton of thoughts on not only being queer and Christian, but being a first-generation Asian-American person working in mostly white spaces. She is a gem of a human. I'm really thankful she took the time to talk to me. Uh, So yeah, here it is. This is my conversation with Nikki Ong. So I did grow up in a Christian home. My parents met when they were um, in the early 20s at a church. I actually was born and raised in Singapore. So that's where my family is originally from. Uh, Grew up in an Anglican church in Singapore where my parents like met, got married, had all three of their kids in that church, had a lot of friends in that church. And um, 
so yeah, so very from a very early age, I have memories of Sunday school, of church, living in a Christian home, very loving Christian home. Um, and then when I was 10, my dad moved our family out to Seattle, Washington um, for a job opportunity. That was my cat. I'm sorry. He's all over the place right now. Hi, Katie. <laughs> um, so when I was 10, my family moved to the States, which is a big adjustment for a lot of reasons, culturally mainly. And... Um, my family had a little bit of a hard time finding a church here in the States mm-hmm. um, for various reasons. And I remember like in my early teens and my into my teenage years, um, my family just trying out a bunch of different churches and trying to figure out where we fit, not only like theologically, but also like how do we join a community, which can be pretty difficult. And we got to a point where my, I think my family had kind of settled at a small community church where um, they felt like they could get to know people. And right. I, I was like a rebellious 15-year-old and hated it. I mean, who, <laughs> who wasn't rebellious of, like, at 15? If, especially when you're raised in the church, you're just like, you come to a point where you're just like, fuck this, I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> or just like, this is just a lot of old people. Like, why do I care? What What is this really doing for me as a person? Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of stepped away a little bit. My parents got, you know, were involved to some extent, but not extremely. Um, and I kind of just was doing my own thing. And then when I was 16, um, I was figuring out my sexuality probably around like 13, 14. Yeah. And that's like a weird time. It's, it's a weird, a lot of people queer or not. Right. (laughs) But especially for queer kids, because just like it kicks in and it's almost, I feel like it was like right before that everyone started to like look at boys or girls. Mm-hmm. And then like when you're 13 and you realize, oh wait, what, some of these things yeah. are not like the other. Yeah, yeah. You're kind of like, oh, this is hard to explain. Like I don't have language to explain things that I'm experiencing and feeling. Yeah. Um, so kind of going through a bit of like a dark time as well as just like other things happening in my life. And um, I came to a point where I was like a little bit desperate. And I actually went to visit one of my older sister at college and she had gotten in, um, she gotten involved with some local ministry at the university. And I went to visit her one day and I went to a church um, and I just hadn't been in church for a really long time. And I felt a very real presence of God that I'd never really experienced in my life. And I just started to cry. It was just one of those things. <laughs> no, I totally so I get to cry it. And, and then it was like kind of a weird conversation with my sister because I don't know where we were at at that time. And she was like, oh, if you if you like that, there is a church because she was in college a little a couple miles away. She's like, there's a church back home that I know maybe you would like. And then just like a few weeks later, a friend of mine that I went to high school with invited me and she ended up going to that church. And I went to their youth service and I had this moment of... I'd never seen people excited to be in church. I'd never seen young people be excited about worship and do it in a way that was really fun and accessible and cool. And people were genuinely excited to be there. And I'd never seen that before. And like the sermon just spoke right to me. I was like, this is, this is real. And I don't know what I need at this time, but I do know that this, I need this Mm -hmm. and whatever this is. And so um, I started going to that church. Uh, My family eventually joined me. All the while, I'm still figuring out who I am, right, Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, being a Christian. And I kind of did that thing where I, like, got – I got super self-righteous and was like, I'm going to be the best Christian. I'm going to do all the Christian things. Because that's what we do. It's almost like I think the trend among, like, queer Christians, especially when we're younger, we don't, like – we know that there's a, the right way to do it and the way I feel is not the right way. And so we circumvent that by becoming more yeah. holy. My thing was I read every bit of theology I could get my hands on because if I could fill myself up with so much God, there ain't no right. room for my sin. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and it, it was like that thing where it was like, okay, here are these like things that I'm experiencing and feeling, but that's not who I am, right? Like, Yeah, this is so No part of my identity. Yeah. Um, so like this kind of came to a point where I resolved that, Hey, this is going to be a thing that I just deal with. Mm-hmm. And I was like at the time in high school and like dating guys. Cause like, this is what people my age do. Um, and just like, okay, I recognize that this is a part of me that's struggling. 
-hmm. I'm going to keep moving on, keep being a part of the church, and that's just something that's eventually going to go away, right? Because that's what's told, you know, the more time you spend with Jesus and the church and the community, and the more you become like Him, the less you become like your sin. So after a while, it's going to go away. The church I was going to had an interim program, so a nine-month-long fellowship type thing where you take Bible classes, you live in dorms, you serve in all ministries of the church, and you serve the church in just every which way. Um, and that was a very, very exciting time for me. Yeah. I found great— and this is post-high school, right? Yeah, this is after I graduated high school. So I like I found community. I found friends who aligned with my Christianness, and we were having such wonderful times of being girly Christian people. <laughs> um, and I loved my intern year. I had I loved studying theology. I loved just like constantly being in the presence of God, quite literally being in the church twenty four seven. And um, I, I, you know, I got a lot of really great Christian friends who would edify me and sharpen me as a Christian. And I like started to think about my future at this church. Right. Um, and looking back on it now, I was 18 and there's so much of you that just wants to be accepted into a community. Mm -hmm. And that kind of meant looking a certain way, acting a certain way, talking a certain way, wanting certain things for your life. And so I was like, okay, um, I need to like marry one of these guys. And then eventually like I will be a pastor's wife. And this is, <laughs> this is my future. This church is my future and this is it. To kind of speed this story up, my intern year is where I met my current girlfriend. Shoot, dang. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. That Lord happened. does work in mysterious ways. Huh? <laughs> we were friends, right? Like, we all start out. We were very, very good friends. And, I mean, nothing, like, we were friends through my whole intern year. And then the, my intern year ended. We got even closer. And we had a very confronting experience where we were no longer just friends. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, Okay, well, this kind of makes sense to me because I knew when I was younger I had all these feelings, so, like, this makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, but also, this is very scary. Basically, what happened, uh, we were outed. Oof. And it's a... I've talked about it so many times. I had told a friend because I was confused by what was happening with me personally, and she was somebody that I trusted. And um, she didn't take it super well. She was kind of very confused. Like, what do you mean you have feelings? Like, what do you, what do you, what are you saying right now? What do you mean you like a girl? Like, what are, I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, she had no context for it. None other than you need help. Yeah. And, um, I had gone away to college. Um, my girlfriend was still in the church and she was still serving and working in the church. Um, we were still trying to figure things out. And the friend that I had told, um, like, got married, went on a honeymoon, like, lived her life. Yeah. And then almost an entire year later, she comes back and decides to tell our pastors without telling us first. That is bullshit. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to me thinking back now how all of that happened, and I got very upset, and I, like, I yelled at her, and I, like, bitched her out, and I was like, how can you do this? Like, come on, you couldn't say something to us first? Like, how could you have been so concerned that you didn't say anything to me? Mm -hmm. But it drove you to do that. And, you know, um, my girlfriend and I were both pulled into meeting rooms separately where two different pastors would come in and kind of react, right? They were mm -hmm. reacting instead of assessing a situation. And I, I, we, I mean, we, I, we got the whole nine yards. We got the, you know, how long has this been going on? Why didn't you say anything to anybody? Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you were born this way? Do we need to have that conversation? What exactly about women are you attracted to? Like, um, getting your sexuality completely policed. Right, of course. And and the worst part now was them being like, oh, you know what? If I were to leave my marriage and my children for a same-sex relationship right now, that would be completely unacceptable. Like, I would be hurting so many people. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm not married and I don't have kids. But, so I don't really know who I'm hurting in this situation. And I assume these were male pastors too, right? 
a one male, one female pastor. Interesting. Kind of came down to don't see each other ever again. Maybe one day you can be friends. Maybe the Holy Spirit will help you be friends one day. But for now, please don't ever see each other or speak to each other again. Spare no expense at seeking professional help. Join this group. Speak to these people. Basically, like, take care of this issue. Here's a to-do list. I was like, no. <laughs> like, to their faces, I was like, yeah, okay, yes, I'm sorry. Like, apologizing for, I don't even know what. And then, like, obviously not not seeing my girlfriend. And her and I sort of took a long time to figure out how to piece back what they had taken from us in those moments and figure out what we wanted for ourselves. Right. And But the, unfortunately, that meant, you know, like retracting from the church and our church mm-hmm. community and our church friends. And we couldn't tell anyone what happened, but we just had to stop hanging out with everybody because we couldn't be seen together. And um, so we, we walked away from a community that had been my family for several years at that point, which was interesting, but also refreshing because that forced us into figuring out, okay, who is in my life because I want them to be and who isn't going to be judgmental but we I mean we continued seeing each other in a very secretive relationship like nobody knew we were just trying to figure out what we were but also like didn't want to feel guilty for enjoying each other's company you know of course not um I did a lot of soul searching I did a lot of talking to God I did a lot of bible reading and I had a really hard time reconciling what these pastors had told me and what I knew Jesus had spoken to me so many times before so after a while, it was like, I just need to keep moving forward. I need to go back to school. I need to get a job. I need to figure out how I can live with myself without feeling guilt and shame on a daily basis. Oh, well, something that I've done a lot of thinking about is like, the church is smart enough to know, and the church maybe like, let's say the progressive evangelical Church of America, mm-hmm. right? A lot of these mega churches that I like have previously been involved with. Yeah. They're smart enough to know that anyone's welcome, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can hold hands with my girlfriend and walk into a church. No one's going to kick us out. No one's going to say nasty things to us. Right. Okay. We can come. They'll talk to us. They'll invite us to small groups. But then after the fact, I'm a second rate citizen in this church, mm-hmm. right? I'm not treated the same as everybody else. If I enter into a church and I'm married to a woman and I'm having troubles with my marriage and I want prayer for it, what does that prayer look like? Does it look different than for a heterosexual couple, yeah. right? Or even Will, like, for example, like if you're a married, uh, a married same-sex couple and you have a child, yeah, and you're bringing that into the church, what does that look like to minister to their children? I don't know if you saw the headline about what InterVarsity is doing. Uh, yeah. I've, yep, I've seen. <laughs> it's the same, it's the same deal. It's just like, you can say that you're welcoming, but, and I say this all the time, welcoming but not affirming is not welcoming at all. It's like, right. re, like we'll take, like we think you're, you're, you're great, but anything mm-hmm. with a but dot 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 is always so devastating because. Oh, sure. Because then you suddenly become a product of that and nothing else, mm-hmm. right? Everything above you fades yes, into the background. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've been through, all that matters is that, and that's all they can see you for. So, yeah, I think that's what's been really hard for me personally, Mm -hmm. as far as, like, being a part of a church, is I don't want to be seen as a second-rate citizen Mm -hmm. until I can be treated equally um, in all matters. Why is it my job to, like, deal with and allow for the thoughts and opinions of the people around me and like, oh, well, I'll just have to deal with it because I want to be a part of this church. Well, they're not giving me the same courtesy. Why am I parsing myself several different ways just to be accepted so that I can be ministered to in a corporate setting such (laughs) as church, which is something that is to be encouraged. Like, is the church somehow denying LGBTQIA people from experiencing the fullness of Jesus on earth through the expression of his church by preventing them from serving and ministering and being ministered to in the way that other people are being asked to, right? As Christians, being a part of the church is essential. It's what God asks of us. 
And it's what's also helps to give us life because we experience God in a different way and through community. And if we're somehow putting boundaries on that for queer people, that makes no sense. It makes zero sense to me because why are you preventing people from experiencing the fullness of who God is? What I find so shocking too is that despite all the research that's been done um, on human sexuality and gender identity and despite all the countless stories like yours, like mine, like uh, Garrett Conley, like any person who's ever written a book about their experience with trying to fix themselves or suppress their sexuality and seeing just the fruit of those people's lives, like it's not good fruit. You know, it's anxiety, yeah. it's deception, it's lying. It's, uh, for some people, uh, like Vicki Beeching, like she developed an autoimmune disorder that like, you know, now has left her with a chronic, what is it? Chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. Like we see what this doctrine and this theology of not affirming queer identities looks like lived out in the bodies of queer people. And it's not good. And if you can't see that, but, and, and all you're doing is saying, dot, 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 but the Bible says. Right, right. You know. Well, and you know what? If we're going to go down that route, let's talk about how the church dealt with divorced couples 10 years ago. There are churches to this day apologizing for how they treated people of divorce. I have friends whose parents got a divorce and their families were kicked out of the church because of it. We don't do that anymore. Not right. because the Bible changed, right? It's because <laughs> our perspective was heightened by the presence of God. Exactly. Let's take it even further back. Churches were segregated. What changed? People's evolution of who is human and who is not. Not necessarily the Bible. Yeah. And we can take it back even a step further to World War II. Um, you know, the, the, before World War II, uh, it was like common practice for people to discriminate against, you know, along with people of color, but specifically Jewish people. Because yeah. um, even Martin Luther, who is like the, you know, the father of the Reformation, uh, wrote a, an entire treatise on why Jews were horrible. And, <laughs> and, and just like, you know, treat, like basically said, like, like, Jews killed Jesus, so treat them, treat them as such. And so it wasn't until like, oh, you know, the Nazis are killing every Jew in Europe. Maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't hate on them as much. And so almost overnight, there was a, there was a difference. And then if we yeah. want to go back even further to the beginning of the church, Gentiles, you know, like we can keep going and like, it's, that's, it's the unfolding revelation of what God is saying as the body of Christ has the capacity to receive the Holy Spirit has been revealing. Christian people in the church like to actively separate themselves from politics and social movements because somehow the Bible is above those things, right? <laughs> Even though it's, like, the most political book there is. Right. <laughs> but, like, oh, no, no, no. Uh, our stance on gay marriage is not a social issue. It's a biblical one. Right? Which I'm like, okay. Mm. How often do we teach on those those few verses that actually talk speak out against homosexuality? Right? People are always talking about how, well, the Bible translated this this way. This meant this culturally. This meant this culturally. How do you... Yeah. I mean, How can we fail to recognize this? You know what I mean? There's even a fear around having these types of conversations, right? And I'm I'm so, so guilty of this. But when you, being part of a church is good and it's healthy and it's it feels good and it feels right, being surrounded by people who are like-minded and who are going to lift you up and elevate you and sharpen you and bring you closer to God. Mm -hmm. Okay, but does that mean we have nothing to learn from people outside of the church? Yeah. Does that mean we're afraid to talk to people outside of the church? Does that mean every time we talk to people outside of the church, there's always conversion in the back of our mind? Do we see do we see people as an opportunity, like always see people as an opportunity to introduce them to Jesus? Sure. But also people are people. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many stories, there's so many things to be learned just from the people around you. And what's really hard, and this might like upset a lot of people, but a lot of the church is steeped in privilege. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And that privilege oftentimes comes from white privilege. Absolutely. White privilege, talking to white privilege, talking to white privilege leads you to white privilege. Yeah. Right. And there's culture in churches. Every church has a culture that has nothing to do with the Bible. Right. How that's why you have a lot of young Christian men who have the same haircut every few years. Right. And they've got they wear the same clothes. Right now it's the top knot. It's very queer looking. I know. They're Which is slightly confusing. <laughs> it's so confusing because I'll walk into church on Sunday nights and I'm looking around and I'm just like, ooh, oh wait, that's your girlfriend. Never mind. Queer. Very, very queer looking. But okay, yeah. that's fine. That's fine. There's culture. But the culture a lot of the times is revolved around white people. Yeah. Which is, for me, somebody who's like, I'm an immigrant to this country. I'm mixed race. I'm not predominantly white. I During my intern year, I had people point blank walk up to me and be like, oh, Nikki, what's it like to see life in widescreen? Like straight up racial slurs. I was the only Asian person in my intern class. And it was like, oh, this Asian lady cut me off in traffic the other day. Nikki, what's that like all the time? Like, yo. That's, that's bullshit, dude. Right. And these are people in the church. A lot of the times they're young white men mm-hmm. who would be lifted up and praised and elevated for their potential because they looked a certain way and they spoke a certain way and they looked kind of like the pastor and they were willing to live their lives in that way. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with who Jesus is. It has nothing to do with what Jesus, how Jesus speaks to people or how Jesus wants to reach hurting people. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with it. All it does is tear people down because of ignorance and a lack of, of awareness of the cultures around you. Is there something about superiority? Like if you were a young white man in the church and you're given all of these opportunities... Is there some sort of complex that creates a superiority over other people in other cultures? Mm. Like, show, show me very mixed. And I know, I know there are very diverse churches. There are a lot of really great ones in Seattle with a lot of people of color in leadership and on their worship team. And it's very, very exciting to see. But the really big ones that are getting all the big name recognition that are like sexy and interesting, yeah. a lot of times are led. I can name so many prominent young white male pastors in the U.S. right now, right? All of them, a lot of them I've heard speak and I appreciate greatly, but I can't name as many people of color. I can't name as many women. That to me is a huge problem. Right now is a very, very painful time for people of color for various yeah. Various reasons, right? That's kind of coming from at us, coming at us from all ends here. Mm-hmm. And having to experience the pain is one thing, and then figuring out how to process all of it to even just continue with daily life is something that none of us really know how to do, but we're trying to figure out how to do. Yeah. Right? Never, you've never done it before. None of us have. Not at this rate. Yeah. Not at, not at this rate. Um, and I mean, you know, working in media changes that because everything you think and feel informs the work that you do. So what does that mean, right? But beyond going beyond that, like A, feeling pain and then seeing white people around you feel nothing. Yeah. That's something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then having to explain the pain to white people in a way that doesn't offend them yeah. takes a lot of energy as well, right? Having to... Complain, yeah, yeah. To be sensitive, but also effective, mm-hmm. which means inherently means upsetting them because you're talking about upsetting things, mm-hmm. and so you don't want to, you don't purposefully want to upset the people around you because then you just have more upset people around you. But at the same time, they need to be aware of it because I can't be the same me when I'm hurting in this way. And right, if you've noticed, right. I'm going to explain to you why, and that's going to hurt, but you need to know. So explaining that on an individual basis to a lot of different people in my life is kind of time consuming and it's, it's painful and it's tough. And then beyond that, having to consume their feelings about it and their processes and then their questioning on how they can help and what they can do and why is it like this? And this is something that we've lived with, right? Mm -hmm. But now they're just experiencing either for the first time or just in a very, very different way. And it's hard because if, if you, the, part of it feels like, oh, if you don't educate them, who will, right? Yeah. 
And it's it's very similar conversation of like white people having friends who are racist, but then having no consequences for their racist friends, right? right. That kind of came out with like Daniel Radcliffe a few weeks ago of like, oh yeah, I'm not. I know my friends are racist, but I'm not going to cut them out of my life because that's not a nice way to be a friend. And I'm like, okay, but then what are the consequences of their racism nothing. if not your friendship? Right, yeah. nothing. Maybe a few uncomfortable arguments here, but people move forward from that. So what are the it's time for consequences, unfortunately. Yeah. People of color have been feeling and seeing these consequences very, very visibly in front of them at all areas of life. And then we're just now having, be it allies or just either white people or not LGBTQIA-identified people, just now being like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, which inherently sounds patronizing, right? <laughs> so there's almost like no way around it. And it's, it's hard. So what do you say? And I don't know. I can't I can't tell what non-minorities should be doing. Right. I can tell them what they should be doing. I don't know what they should be doing. I'm trying to figure out what I should be doing. There's this extreme burden for minorities that they feel like they have to take on to not only be okay at their own level, but then educate the people around them when very, very confusing things are happening. In an ideal world, this is where the church steps up. This is where they step forward and communities come forward and say, we hear you and we elevate you mm-hmm. to be who you need to be, to say what you need to say. And that if that means removing myself from the conversation, I will do that. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I personally haven't seen it. And I'm sure that there are many affirming churches and people out there who have done that very thing. And for that, I'm very grateful, but I, I haven't seen it. If the church is a place to turn to when pain is occurring, how are we how is the church not making itself more available? All right, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nikki Ong. You can connect with Nikki over at buzzfeed.com slash Nicola Ong. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-A-N-G as well as over on Twitter and Instagram by the same handle, at Nicola Ong. Before I go, and like I say every single week, A Tiny Revolution is part of the Bedlam Podcast Network, a collection of creatives sounding off on stuff that matters. If you like movie reviews, if you like talking about faith, if you like talking about creativity, there is a podcast out there that's probably going to speak something to you as well. So go over to bedlampodcast.com and check out our different array of shows everything from being too real with cope where we talk about the realness of being creatives in a world that is really hard to operate um, we talk there's the our newest podcast the trust fall with my internet cousin anthony garcia where he is sharing a bit about his story of his own unraveling faith and it's it's really good again me too moments all over the place which is what i live for i think i want to get that as a tattoo just the words me too like just to ooh, that's an idea okay more on that later. Anyways, if you want to learn more about the Bedlam Podcast Network, you can go to bedlampodcast.com. And if you ever th- feel like you want to sponsor or buy an ad with us, it's a really easy and affordable way to connect with listeners all over the country from a vast array of networks. So again, that's bedlampodcast.com. Uh, yeah, we'll see you over there. Just as a reminder, you can connect with me and all of my social media at thekevingarcia.com. I literally live on the internet, so if you ever want to get in touch with me, tweet at me, leave me a comment on Instagram, leave me a message on my blog, comment on the blog, share the blog, like me on Facebook, let's be friends, let's be honest, Um, I live on the internet. So that is everything. I'll see you cats in LA, and until next week, this has been A Tiny Revolution. My name is Kevin Garcia, and I'll talk to you later. Mwah! My, are you drinking a soda? <laughs> Is it Lacroix? No, it's, it's actually a Hawaiian Sun green tea with ginseng and other natural flavor. I'm so sorry.